We've started this series about creating a manifesto, living out a manifesto, that, that it's not enough just to have a belief system or ideas about what life are to be, is to be like, but rather the actual implementation of a plan for your life. And that a manifesto um, involves uh, not only a vision, uh, not only a plan, not only a belief system, but an implementation of what, the future that you believe God wants you to have, the one that he created for you to have. And we saw that God had a manifesto when he created. That whole first chapter of the book of Genesis is a giant manifesto. God sees what he wants, speaks what he wants, declares it, and then brings it into being, and he says that it is good. And then he creates us in his image. And in that likeness, we are given the power to create the future that God wants us to have, that we can be a part of visualizing, speaking, and then implementing a plan so that we can see at the end of the day, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a marriage, or in a family, or in a workplace, that it is good that we implement the manifesto of God, let there be life in the environments around us. So last week, we started to learn about a man named Nehemiah and how he responds to the broken world around him. And I, I think he's a perfect guy to use because the world's really screwed up when he's around. And there's a lot of broken down things. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed by war. And some of the people are living in exile, have been removed from Jerusalem. Some of them are living in Jerusalem, though it is just a city of rubble and it's been broken down. So Nehemiah investigates about what's going on in Jerusalem. And he, he has a relationship with the Persian king, Artaxerxes. And so he's, he's, he's inquiring about what's going on in his particular uh, city of Jerusalem. And he's really concerned. And so when he finds out that it is totally destroyed, he wants to put together a plan to go back and rebuild the walls of the city and to see the city put back together. So he seeks God, and we learned from Stacy last week about the, the role of prayer and fasting in our lives. And he acknowledges the plan of God, and he seeks God's will for his manifesto. God, tell me what you want me to do. You know, it's, it's what we do. We ask God, what do you want my marriage to look like? What do, you, what do you want my involvement at work to look like? What do you want my life to be like? So he begins this whole process of, of seeking after God, and so in this story, he seeks favor of the king to get the empowerment that he needs. He sees the city's broken down, it's destroyed, but he has this relationship with this enabler, this empowerer, this king that has the ability to empower him to bring about a change in the future for his people. It's kind of, you're beginning to see how this works like, a, like a, an allegory of our relationship with God and, and how we can begin to position ourselves to see life change. So we praise to God about an opportunity to have favor with the king. So he seeks God, it's like, God, give me, give me favor with this king Let, that, that I would have an opportunity for the big ask. You know, that moment when you get to ask for what you want. That God, that you would set it up with the king that I would have an opportunity to ask what I, I need in order to see this manifesto become a reality. So I think there's parts of the conversation that we're gonna take a look at between the king 
and Nehemiah that are very important when you're thinking about your own personal manifesto, some of the components that need to be a part of it, some of the, some of the things that you, what are you supposed to ask God for? What is it that we go to God about? And so there's some components here that we're going to see that correlate with our relationship with God and, and some of the ways to focus your life into a manifesto that is asking the right questions, that's looking for the right kind of empowerment, that's trying to design the right kind of future that God wants to be a part of. So let's take a look at the story. Let's take a look at the conversation that he has with the king. So Nehemiah gets up, he works in the service of the king, and in Nehemiah 2, 2, we see this. So the king said to me, why is your face sad though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? One of the things that I learned taking a look at that statement and that response is that your manifesto, what you're really looking to accomplish with your life should go down to the affections of your heart. It really should affect how you are as a person when it should be the thing that brings you your greatest joy and it should also be the thing of your greatest sorrow. I was thinking about it and I came up with this little phrase that a pretty countenance is easy to maintain for the shallow of heart. A pretty countenance is easy to maintain for those whose passions don't go deep into their soul. And when things are going wrong, I think we've been trained in our country to keep a good face, a stiff upper lip, keep an outer appearance. Matter of fact, I think we're more concerned about our outer appearance than allowing the affections of our hearts to ever affect whether or not we're smiling or not. I remember when I was going through a divorce, my divorce, it was the only one divorce I had, and it's not like a series of divorces. I, uh, that would have been a problem. But I, I remember when my, my ex-wife left me and we were fighting for custody of my daughter and, and going through all that, and, and it was a hard journey and uh, separated for a year, and then the divorce occurred, and, and um, it was a miserable time. Absolutely miserable time. I don't, I don't think I cried more in my life than during that one-year period of time. But I remember coming through it and all and, and um, coming out the other side of it. And, and, and I remember there was this young man that approached me who was, whose wife had left him as well, and he also had a child. And I remember that he called me and said, Paul, I want to get together with you because you and I have gone through the same things. And I, I want you to help me walk through this time. And I was like, you know, God, if, this, if you want to use this moment in my life to help another human being, that's absolutely what I want to do. Even though it was an embarrassment to me and I kind of felt like it was a personal failure and all this, it's like I, I want to be able to help this other individual walk through that. And I remember getting together and, and, and I remember thinking about, I know exactly how this guy feels. He feels a sense of betrayal. He feels a sense of failure. He feels a desperation for his child. He feels that, you know, he's, he's concerned about whether how the relationship with his child will be in the future and how he's going to close that gap and, 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 and all those things that just were weighing heavy on my life. 
And I remember getting together with him and having a cup of coffee, and, and he said, listen, I've got to ask you a question. When do you think it's okay for me to start having sex again with other people? And I'm like, wait a minute, you, you know, you're not divorced yet, right? You're, you're just separated. Yeah, he goes, yeah, I'm separated. He said, but I've already met somebody. And I'm like, well, you know, um, I could see how that happens. You get lonely, and I, you know, I could, I, that temptation presented itself to me as well, but, you know, it was just something God said, no, you're a married man, and you remain married until you're not married. But, I, but I, I remember looking at this young man, and it's like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. I don't understand. You're not like vomiting in the middle of the night because you could lose your child. You're not sick because of your personal failures. You're not devastated because the person that you loved rejected you and left you. Like, you're concerned about whether or not when you can have sex again? I mean, this is how the conversation went. I mean, and... And what amazed me is that sometimes we're supposed to be sad. Sometimes we're supposed to be miserable. Sometimes we're supposed to be sick over the conditions of our lives. But in America, we're concerned about baldness. We're concerned about gaining 15 pounds. We're concerned about whether or not we drive the right car or not, or whether or not people like me or not. But yet we could be losing our marriages, and we're not getting sick over that. You know, I can talk to a a dad, and he's sick over his golf score, but when I asked him about whether or not how he's going to deal with Snapchat with his son, he's like, well, boys will be boys. Like, you're more concerned over your golf score than, than whether or not you're losing your family. And, and so, this is an important conversation. Because maybe we're not getting sick at, at the right things. You know, if you think that your marriage can end and you can just get another one, then I can tell you already, if you're not getting sick at the demise of your marriage, then, then you're part of the problem with your marriage. If you're not sick about what's happening to children in churches or in families, then then you're sick about the wrong things. And that's really important. And so maybe you're in a place where it's like, you know what, I am really worried. And and, and it's happened to me. I've been sick about the three floods that have occurred. and I've been working incredibly hard and in, in interfacing with the engineers and the legal aspects and the, and the city. And I mean, you guys would be shocked how much I'm involved in, in the, the dialogue of flooding in the Charleston area. But then, you know what? God constantly reminds me. It's like, but that's not what I want you sick about. That's not what I want to bring your countenance down. I don't want you kicking the church cat because you're upset about the building. If you're going to kick the church's cat, and that's just a metaphor, there is no church cat, and I'm not kicking it. I just want to let you know. So I talk about darkness to light. This guy needs to go to a seminar. It's like, uh, but the thing is, is what are we getting sick about? Maybe we're not getting sick about the right things. Maybe we're not concerned about the right things. And, and maybe you're a manifesto. When you think about what makes you sick, what makes you upset, you'll, maybe you'll gasp like I did. It's like, oh, man. I'm not upset about the, I'm upset about the wrong things. 
You know, I need to be concerned about the right things. And that's where you find out where your manifesto goes. It's that thing that brings you the joy, the thing that makes you sick about things in the world around you. And a pretty countenance is easy to maintain if you're not somebody that's passionate of heart about the things that are around you. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I think this is a big statement right here. I think this is a big interchange that's going on between Nehemiah and this incredible king. I think the vision of our lives is really revealed when we are asked a question like, or a question like, what do you, what do you want? What's your ask? What do you want? What are you requesting? What is, what is your win? What does your win look like? What does your want look like? What is, what is the way that this could go that you want? I think that tells you a lot about what your heart's after, what you're focusing on. And this is exactly what the king asked Nehemiah. And I think the true measure of a heart is revealed when a person asking the question can really grant the request. Not just hypothetical, what's your win? But that person has the ability to give you the win. Okay? Now, this happened to me the other day. Um, I, uh, I would, you know, it was part of our fasting and prayer time, and, and um, a very capable individual financially, super capable, probably one of the most capable individuals I know, uh, called me out of the blue and asked me, what do you need? And it's like, wow, it's kind of like I was having a Nehemiah moment. Now here's what I wish I said in response. Because I've, I've thought about the conversation after it. I wish I had said, I need a 65 inch OLED TV. Okay, and if you think that's ridiculous, you don't know what OLED stands for. I mean, it's absolutely, it's wicked awesome. It's incredible. You'll never see an image on the TV better than, than that. I thought I should have asked for that two-inch lift kit for my new Subaru. I should have asked for the new black rims that I really want and that my car desperately needs. I should have asked them because this guy could have done it. I mean, he could have easily just wrote me a check and we're good friends, and, and he would have easily wanted to see me when I was thinking, dude, you should have asked for a camper. Because, you know, I want one of those little teardrop campers that go on the back of your car, and you pull all the way across to Wyoming, and you camp in Yellowstone. I mean, I, I, I think this way. But you know what? When he asked me, he, calls, he said, Paul, so tell me, what, what do you need? What do you need? I asked him to help with the missional aspect of Crosstown, and he granted my request immediately. I said, well, I have to be honest with you. I know it's kind of crazy. I, can't, I don't feel I can ask the people of Crosstown to buy a building that floods when we already have one. But I really feel a desperate need to help create an environment where children are safe. And right now, they're using the same bathroom that the adults use, and that's that's like gross to me, okay? Um, it's just the way we've had to do it and the Lord has blessed us and protected us and, and we've been good stewards of that, but it's like we're too big for that anymore. But I would like to have, I said, I really need that, that stupid building behind us that floods um, so that we can keep our kids safe. 
And he said, okay, if you get it, I'll pay the mortgage. It's like, what? He goes, yeah, I'll, I'll, every month I'll write the check and I'll pay the mortgage so that you can have it because I believe in what you're doing at Crosstown. And it's like, really? Could I interest you in a camper? <laughs> Is there any way I could get this camper back in the conversation again? And so I don't know if they'll sell us that building and I don't know what price that they'll decide to sell it to us to, but... There's one thing crazier than buying a building that floods is not selling one that floods. Um, one of the things that I've learned is that everybody is a philanthropist before they get money. Everybody's a philanthropist. I want to help the poor. I want God to bless my job so that I can give more to the church. I have heard that a gazillion thousand times. But after they get the money, then the heart goes where the manifesto, the true manifesto is. You know, and if you're a person of welfare, you've discovered something really interesting, haven't you? The more money you have, the harder it is to give. I mean, it's like, especially when we talk about tithing, when all of a sudden the, number, the zeros start going up, you're like, oh my goodness. You know, we got people here that, will, will, that, that give $70,000 a year. That's part of their tithe check. You say, well, that's easy because they make a lot of money. No, I know them. Their hands still shake when they write that check. See, when you can get what you want, you find out what your manifest is. You really do. And this is what Nehemiah had to find out about himself. And I think that's why when the king asked him, Nehemiah, what is your request? He immediately, the next line says, and I prayed to the God of heaven because I can't let me get in the way because I'll be asking for that camper. I'll be concerned about my success. I'll be concerned about what I need. I'll be concerned about my retirement. I'll be concerned about a gazillion other things that could take, take place. Listen to Nehemiah's big ask. He says, then I said to the king, after the king said, I'll, what do you need? He says, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen sitting alongside him, how long will you journey, your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. When asked what he wanted, Nehemiah didn't make a manifesto for wealth. He didn't ask for a promotion. He didn't ask for vindication from his enemies. You know that one scene in um, uh, the Christmas story? Ralphie finally goes to talk to Santa Claus you're visualizing, he gets to the top of the ladder, he's sitting on Santa Claus, he's, just, he's asked what he wants for Christmas, and then he says, a football, and he's, so they, they shove him down the, the slide, and he turns around and he stops himself, and I've tried to rehearse this, but, and so I can say it the way Ralphie did, but I just can't say it as fast. When he was asked what he really wanted, he said, I want, a, I want an official red carbon action 200 shot range model air rifle. And then Santa looks at him and says, you'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> See, Nehemiah looked at the crisis of the world around him. 
and he made that his ask. When he was asked whatever he wanted and what was his request, he looked at the broken. He looked at the lost. That's what he looked at. When his big opportunity for an ask came, Nehemiah looked at the needs of his family and the needs of other people around him. The important part of the ask is that he sought future empowerment and not present pleasure. Wouldn't we, I mean I would, I would just wanna ask for something that's gonna make my life easier now. But that's not a divine manifesto. See, a divine manifesto says, listen, if I have my ask from God, and, and, and isn't that what we've wrestled with about prayer? Because a lot of us have seen it not work. And let's just be honest, it's kind of like the, the thing we don't want to talk about in church. Jesus says, praying, asking that you, whatever you want, you will have that which you ask of your heavenly Father. Now, haven't we created denominations and commentaries and all kinds of things about why that prayer works or doesn't work? Unless it's our ask that's all wrong. See, most of the time when we hear, if we hear somebody preach us, you ask anything of God, whatever you want, he'll give it to you and he'll grant you it is God's, God's plan that you have what you want. Okay, if you decontextualize everything about the manifesto of God and put it into a verse that you could ask for anything from God, then maybe you could end up with something like that. And I'll tell you what else you'll end up with. Disappointment, because it doesn't work. But if in the moment of your ask, you sought future empowerment and not just pre present time pleasure, I think we'd see more prayers getting answered. I think we'd see more people becoming wealthy because they could be trusted with wealth, to use the wealth to empower other people instead of to just pleasure their own lives. A manifesto was creating a new future, and Nehemiah sought God to give him the wisdom to ask for what he needs. See, and that's what happened to me this week. I have tried to fix the problem with this church and with the city and all this. It's going to be a long journey, and it's going to take time, and it's just going to be a long and, and so in the seven days of prayer, I just got on my knees before God and said, God, I can't do this. I just, I don't even know what to ask for anymore. I've asked for a lawsuit. I've asked for engineers. I've asked for attorneys. I've asked, and none of it's worked. I mean, I've asked for, you know, the, the slab to raise up four feet and some miraculous, I mean, I really did. We actually got down and prayed for the slab that it would raise, you know? Hey, I'm telling you, I, 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 I take this job seriously. And then I got to the point where I'm like, God, I don't even know what to ask for anymore. It's like, that's where prayer starts, is that you, you ask for me to give you the thing that you should ask for. And I'm like, wow. He goes, yeah, that's how you get back to me. And within six hours of praying a prayer that I th thought God gave me to pray, I had what I asked for. See, God realigned my manifesto with his manifesto. Let there be life. Let's continue to look at this, this element of divine manifesto being revealed. And Nehemiah says, and I said to the king, 
if it please the king, let letters be given to me from the governors, for the governors of the providences beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through. He says, let me have letters so that I can go and I can move about the area because he's actually a foreigner in the Persian Empire and he's, he, you know, what he's proposing to do is to go fix the city of Jerusalem that the Persian government has destroyed. So he's asking the king for letters to have authority to talk to each of the governors. It's this whole issue about borders that we are faced with in America. It's not a new conversation. They had border issues in the Persian Empire. They controlled the movement of people. They had to watch over to see who's moving through to do what. And so Nehemiah's time, the flow of people, was being monitored by the empire and strictly controlled. And so in order to move, he would have to have a letter that he would show the governor of that region that he has the right to be there. And then he would be allowed to pass, and then he'd go to the next region. He'd have a letter for that governor saying, I have a right to be here until he arrives at where he's in Jerusalem and he's beginning to do the work. And if we look at this as a a giant allegory, I think in our lives, when we try to grow, when we try to change, when we try to do something different, when we try to bring about a new future into our lives, we're going to have to deal with the governors of the providences. As you begin to make changes in your life, you're going to find that there are these powers internally and externally that will want to control your movement, whether or not you get to better yourself, whether or not you get to improve yourself, whether or not you're allowed to be forgiven, whether or not you are allowed. There are these providences throughout our society. There are the ones that in our political view of whether or not women are allowed to hold certain positions, whether people of certain ethnic groups are allowed to, to visit or not visit or to hold certain positions in our government. There's like social letters that we have that, yes, we, we're, we're hiring, but we're, we're not hiring your type. Thank God for the celebration of Martin Luther King Day coming up to remind us that there is and there will always be social governors who will try to control the movement of people, who gets to go up and who's forced to go down. And it was no different in Nehemiah's life. There'll be those governors that may be the issues that constantly get in your way. Maybe alcoholism, maybe addictions, these governors that constantly control you from ever becoming anything better than you are. Maybe there are failures in your life that you have received that govern your life. You dropped out of college, you messed up, or you cheated on a spouse. And it's pretty much that's governing your life for the rest of your life. That's who you are. You're a cheat. You're an addict. You know, you're, you're a failure. You're an idiot. You're the wrong color, you're the wrong gender. We live in a society, we live in a life where we have these governors that the moment we try to step forward and improve ourselves, that they just tell us, do not you. There may be biases that we're faced with. There may be the way that we think about ourselves. Man, 
I think that's where these providences, these governors really dwell the most, is in our own heads. Let's take shame, regret, helplessness, victimization. These are like governors that control us and keep us from moving wherever we would go when we think that we could do better, but yet we just remind ourselves something that our dad said to us when maybe we were 17. Maybe something our dad didn't say to us when we were 17 that hems us in and keeps us from, from going beyond. But because of our conversation with our king, Christ has given us letters that we can pass. Every one of us. This is what Paul was talking about in Philippians 3, 12. He said, I press on. I move forward through all the different providences of life that I may lay hold of what for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 12, he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us, but let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on our King Jesus, the author, the one who has written us the letter and the perfecter of our faith. That he has told us we can move out of dysfunction and into life. That we can move out of guilt and shame and into forgiveness and newness. Paul's like, I've got these letters. I don't have to be who I was. I don't have to stay where people tell me I have to stay. I think too many of us allow shame to stop us. It is probably the strongest governor that you will ever face in life is, is shame. Shame is the residual shadow of guilt and failure. It's the, the part of guilt, or guilt that, even though the guilt may be resolved, that echoes our passed forward. It's kind of the border, the wall that has been built. That when you're starting to make movement towards an improvement in your life, it's the wall that says, yeah, yeah, I know you're forgiven. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but not, not you. You know, I haven't been a person who's made a lot of mistakes in my life. Shame has always been something I've needed to dealt, deal with, and, and I had to deal with it early. After being released by the law, and having been a, uh, become a Christian, uh, the law continued to try to catch me for my drug dealings as a young person. And everyone thought that my coming to Jesus moment was really just an act to get out of trouble and to kind of get away from the law. And you could see how you'd want to use something like that. And I was reminded constantly that I was going to relapse, that I was going to mess up, that I was never going to amount to anything. I was constantly being reminded of that as a young man. And as I reflect on it now, um, here's the thing. They were probably right. I mean, they were, their assessment of my life was, was right. But I had a letter from my king. I had a letter that said that that's not how it had to go for me. I want you to listen to this letter that my king gave me to help me pass through the province of shame that I had in my life. And as a young Christian, I, this, this letter became, I carried it with me. I tore it out of my Bible and I read it to myself and it was like, this is how I get past my shame because I was everything they said I was. And 1 John 1.8 said this, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
I was like, okay, good, honesty, I like it, a little bit in my face. Dude, if you don't think your life screwed up, if you don't think you've screwed up, you're just fooling yourself. Well, I need to know that. I need to know that. But listen to what he says in response. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. It's like, what? Yeah, but not, not, I mean, Lord, you know what I was doing over there, right? It's like, no. Paul, I have forgiven you of all your unrighteousness. Even the stuff that you're going to do. That if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just. Here's a letter. Whenever you screw up, you know, I would shock you with how often I screw up. Nah, if you've been here a while, you're probably not too shocked. And you say, well, why can you stand up there on a Sunday morning? Because I have a letter that says my life's not over when I screw up. I got a letter from my king that says I can move through the providence of guilt, I can experience forgiveness, and then I can move through the providence of shame, and I can continue to go to accomplish what God has called me to accomplish. See, I believe that I was forgiven before God. But I needed another letter because I don't think that's our big problem here. I needed to believe that I was forgiven before me. I think that's where we get stuck. It's like, I know that Jesus died for me and he died for the sins of the world on the cross. I know that. But I needed to believe I was forgiven before me. That I could let me be forgive me. So I found another letter that was written to me by my king, 1 John 3. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him, answer the governor of our hearts, in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. It's like, what? Yeah, he's, God's saying, listen, you, the gov- your heart acts as a governor and tells you, tells you, you suck. Seriously, you think worse things than you suck to yourself, okay? If you're like me and you've discovered that we're liars if we say we don't sin, you know the language you could use towards yourself. And, and he says, listen, Here's another letter. Paul, I want you to know that your heart's going to lie to you and tell you that you're still condemned, but if you have confidence in your king, then you'll be free of shame. We've all received letters from our king. There is no governor that can stop us. There's this verse that says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I know that sounds too good for you to believe, and others have fought it too. I know that there are some Christians here who are be like, wow, dude, you're, you're making this way too easy. You're darn right I am. It's called good news. Listen, let me, let me just say how much we have a hard time believing this verse. See, Bible translating is a difficult thing, especially from a an ancient language into a modern language like English. Now, we get it right most of the time, 99.9% of the time. 
But interestingly enough, in one of the most used versions of the Bible, we didn't get this verse right in the English translation. Let me show you what the King James version of this verse is, if you'll put it up there. Now the verse reads, in the true Greek language, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Bingo, that's it. Oh, that's, but so here's what the King James translators wrote in there, because the little guy writing the stuff said, I, I, just, I just deal with shame too much. So he wrote it this way, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, meaning they've cleaned up their lives, but after the spirit. Those are the ones who are not condemned because they've cleaned up their lives and now they're spiritually focused, therefore they're not condemned any longer. Can you believe that? The King James Version got this wrong. Why? Because some little translator couldn't believe that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Yeah, but I'm still struggling with porn. Yeah, well, I just want to let you know, no condemnation. Yeah, but I'm still wrestling with uh, drugs or alcohol or, or lying or jealousy or resentment. Uh, yeah, yeah, those are tough things, and we need to get those under control in your life, but I just want to give you, a, want to give you some heads up. Uh, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, this is so good, and we're so screwed up on this, is that's why we call this the most incredible parable of the Bible where this father forgives this boy. We called it the story of the prodigal son. Some King James guy wrote that in the side and said this is what this story should be called because it's about a screw-up. That's not what Jesus called that story. He said the kingdom of God is like a father who had two sons. It's the story of a loving father. But we don't, we look at that letter and we hand it back to our king and say, yeah, that may be true for that little girl over there and that young guy over there, but that letter's not true for me. You will not have a different future if shame goes into the future with you. It's got to end today and it's got to end now. And as you receive communion in this moment, I want you to think of it more than just a sacrament of the church but I want you to realize that when you take that bread, dip it into that cup, you are taking a letter that was written in blood from your king that says to you, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Fathers, we enter into this moment with you. We come and we believe you died for us. We believe you saved us, but God, that governor of our heart tells us that we'll never amount to anything, that my kind of people don't deserve to go forward. There are governors around in our society and governors in our minds that are telling us that we don't have the right to succeed, to be good, to experience a different future than the one that we deserve because of the way that we are or because of a mistake that we've made in the past. But today, we join together and we get in line and we believe our King and we receive the letter that was penned in the blood of the Son of God, penned in His flesh, that has been given to us that we may walk out the manifest of God in our lives. I invite you into this moment take the shame no further 
into the future.